The retirement and IRA show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier and Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. This is the Retirement and IRA Show coming to you from beautiful northern Colorado. Join us as certified financial planner Jim Saunier, as well as Colorado State University finance instructor and certified financial planner Chris Stein, teach you about IRAs, 401ks, annuities, social security, pension plans, and estate planning in a fun and enjoyable show. Whether you are listening live in Colorado or streaming from their website or iTunes podcast, Jim and Chris want you to know that they're available to help you plan for your retirement. Just visit their website at jimhelps.com. That's jim, H-E-L-P-S dot com. And click the Meet the Team button on the homepage. Now, here's Jim and Chris with today's show. Welcome to the Retirement and IRA Show EDU edition for this week. Um, feels like I haven't talked to you for a long time because I've been gone. We re- Recorded uh, some extra shows to play while I was on vacation. So uh, you as listeners have uh, been on the regular schedule, the regular Wednesday-Saturday release schedule for the podcasts. Uh, So uh, it hasn't been too long since you've had a fresh podcast. For me, it's been a while since we've recorded one. Same thing for Jim, because he uh, recorded them with me, me, of course. So... uh, um, I'm I'm saying all this in case we say something that doesn't seem to make sense uh, in relationship to the last show that we did, uh, but it was a while ago. It was like two and a half weeks ago or so, maybe maybe close to three weeks at this point since we recorded the last shows. So um, I've got Jim here. Uh, we're in the office today, so he's in the penthouse suite uh, for his uh, recording experience. I'm in my office. And uh, we're going to pick up where we left off last time with the EDU show, where we were discussing an article from MarketWatch, uh, where a, a, a person had, had emailed the author of this uh, article with a question about retirement for her and her husband. And we were kind of walking through it and sharing some of our thoughts, and we're going to pick up where we left off here, and, and Jim has that article in front of him now. Was that my cue? That's your cue. It does feel a little odd. It's, it's been a while. Listeners, they, <laughs> they haven't missed the beat. They just kept listening. But yes, after a three-week hiatus from recording, uh, I too forgot the whole... I had to pull up the article again and reread it. And yeah, taking three weeks off from anything, I think, isn't uh, very good. It just kind of breaks your rhythm. So we have to get back into it. But it worked out good, folks, in the sense... <clears throat> and Chris, in case you forgot... The first show we did on this, part one, if you will, uh, was really just going through the question. Today, we're going to go through the answer. Now, to our listeners, they would have listened to part one already with the question, and now they're going to hear uh, our comments to the answer that the author gave. So, anyways, it is, it is uh, a little bit 
clunky trying to get back into the swing of things after pre-recording so many shows and then taking three weeks off from recording. But I'm sure our listeners would want to know if you want to take about four seconds, maybe five, Mm -hmm. and uh, share how your uh, trip through Eastern Europe, I think, and and maybe Germany Mm -hmm. uh, went. Yeah, it was great. We had a uh, one on a river cruise from uh, Budapest to okay, Amsterdam, time's and it was fun. <laughs> <laughs> no, just kidding. So, uh, share with some listeners if you'd like some of the highlights or lowlights. Were there any lowlights? Um, you know, the weather was different than we expected. As we were getting ready to go, Europe was having record heat and a drought, and people were miserable. Um, so we kind of packed. Uh, close with that in mind, and it turned out to be cool and rainy uh, a lot of the time. Not not torrential rains constantly, but enough rain here and there to keep things green and keep the river full, which is important for the river boat uh, uh, to to stay afloat and not have to be uh, offloaded and have the the passengers bust to certain places, which does happen when the river's too low over there and in uh, Europe, and it actually happened a couple weeks before we left to go, so we were worried that, that was going to happen to us, but the rain came and cooled off, and we had a lot of days in the 70s. Um, uh, the coldest day was probably 65, so it was kind of chilly. Uh, luckily, I did throw in a jacket at the last minute just in case, but uh, yeah, so we had a lot of hot weather clothes, but I ended up wearing pants more than shorts <laughs> when we were over there. Uh, but it was it was really lovely. It was really nice. Saw a lot of uh, you, you kind of see a ton of uh, castles and a ton of churches and a ton of villages uh, along the river there, and they were all they all had their own unique charm. Um, but I will have to say that after you've seen about fifteen old churches and fifteen castles or um, palaces, they all start to blend together. So. In my mind, I I remember the parts I liked, but I couldn't tell you where they were because they all kind of mushed together after a while. But we had a great time. Good, good. I'm glad. Nice and relaxing. Nice to get away. All righty. Well, anyways, folks, that's Chris's summary of his trip. I will be uh, traveling myself, but not to Europe on a cruise as Chris did. But I will be gone for, I think, almost four weeks, by the way, Chris. I don't think you knew any what? of this. Yes. I will be in Dallas in mid-October, somewhere around there. Hmm. And then I'm going to fly back to Mass to visit Dad. Mm-hmm. And I'll stay a week. And then I'm going to fly to Philly for the Schwab Conference. Are you going to go this year again with your students? Um, probably not. They, what they do at that Schwab conference is when they, they kind of bounce back and forth, as you know, kind of Eastern versus Western U.S. to to balance it out. And when they're holding the conference on the, in the Eastern part of the United States, they invite mostly Eastern based schools to have their students participate. So, uh, we probably, we, we will likely not get an invite. I've told them we're happy to come if they, (laughs) if they want to bring us out there, but I suspect there's plenty of schools that will say yes in the Eastern (laughs) half of the United States, because there's a lot of them. So, uh, I, I don't expect to be at, uh, this one, but the, but the following year when it bounces back out West, uh, hopefully we'll be there again. So again, I will start and head to Dallas from Dallas to mass, stay there a week. From Mass to Philly, stay there three days. From Philly, 
I'm going to go into Ohio because I'm actually going to drive from Colorado to Cincinnati, leave my car at the Cincinnati airport, and start going on all these travels. You're going to drive to Cincinnati and then fly to Dallas? Yeah. Hmm. Who's your travel agent? <laughs> Me. I don't want to drive to Dallas <laughs> and then north to Cincy. That's, that's too out of the way. I'll just drive straight. Because driving through Kansas is easy. So I'll just drive straight through Kansas. Then you got to hit Missouri and Illinois and a couple of little cities like uh, states like that. But then you get into Ohio. Leave my car in, in Cincinnati, which is actually Kentucky. The Cincinnati International Airport is in Kentucky. Leave my car there. Go to Dallas, from Dallas to Mass, from Mass to Philly. From Philly, I'll fly back to Ohio, to Cincinnati. Then Rachel's going to fly out the very next day, and we'll spend four or five days together in Cincinnati. And then she'll fly home. I'll spend another week, week and a half, and then I'll drive home. Wow. So, yeah, it's a lot of travel. Quite an adventure. Up. Yeah, a little mini adventure, I guess. But that'll be starting around... The 9th of October, and I get back around the 12th of November. So, anyways, I'll share more with some people, and maybe I can meet some some listeners. Um, there'll be no opportunity, I don't think, in Dallas. My time is pretty much spoken for with the commitment I made there. But um, we'll see. We'll see in Massachusetts, Cincinnati, Ohio area, and then... Uh, Philly might be a tight one. It depends how uh, involved the Schwab conference is. But anyways, that's what I will be doing in the not-too-distant future. Okay, so let's jump into today's show. What I want to get, get uh, will do is I'm just going to read, folks, promise, no, no, no divergence. That was part one. I'm just going to read the question because I really think it's helpful for people to hear the question again, especially if they listen to part one and then go a week or two before listening to part two. If we just jumped into the answer without the context of the question, wouldn't fit in too well. So I'm just going to read through the question that this reporter received. And if you want to hear, if you're new and this is the very first podcast you've ever listened to, I do suggest you listen to part one, where Chris and I really talk about the question in a little more detail. And what we're trying to do here is take an, a, a question that is being looked at through the lens or through the prism, if you will, folks, of traditional retirement planning, safe withdrawal rate style approach. And traditional retirement planning in the sense, ooh, don't spend a lot at first on fun. You might need it later. That type of traditional approach, which is how most retirement planning is done. Chris and I don't personally have anything against that style of retirement planning. It is the most common. The cynic in me has a reason why I feel it's the most common. And, and I've shared that, and maybe I'll get into it on today's show. I don't know. It's not that we are against it. It's just that we don't support it. We have another approach that we tend to favor. If you like the approach of a safe withdrawal rate or Monte Carlo probability statistic or curtailing spending on fun early in retirement until you're certain that sequence of return risk isn't going to impact you and then you think you're going to turn on the floodgates four, five, six, eight years into retirement and start spending on fun, Chris and I don't agree with that approach. We came up with a concept we call the fun number approach to retirement. And I really think 
this woman's questions could be answered and the husband's desires. The woman, as you'll see, if you forget, folks, really has a question. The husband has a desire. Or put in the, the, the verbiage that I use, the woman wants to make sure she's giving an explicit promise to the older her that they will be taken care of. And the husband wants permission from the older him to spend now, early in retirement, day one of retirement, on fun things, as he points out, while we have not only the money, but the ability. So let me just read the question, then we'll get into the answer. Sound good, Chris? Sounds perfect. Dear Quinton, and this came into some, some guy named Quinton, and he writes for Market Watch. Dear Quinton, my husband will be retiring at the end of August after working a high-pressure job for 31 years. We are both 64. Both of us have health insurance under my plan. I intend to work at least until I turn 65, when I will be eligible for Medicare. I would like to continue for at least another six months until he is also eligible for Medicare. So the husband is going to retire this year, wife next year at age 65. Okay. Together we have one and a quarter million in tax-deferred retirement accounts. 250000 in Roth accounts and 125000 in brokerage accounts and 25000 in savings. So I will put 150000 I'm going to combine those two. 150000 folks, of what we call maybe taxable. 250000 never taxable, Roth. One and a quarter million, always taxable. Our house is currently valued at around 400000 or we own our house, which is currently valued at around 400000 At age 70, our combined Social Security payments are projected to be a little under 7000 a month. We expect to receive an inheritance of at least a million dollars in the next 10 years, but we have not included that in our retirement planning. Both of us have longevity. All four of our parents are in their late 80s or early 90s. Between us, three grandmothers who lived to be well over 90. How do you have three grandmothers? Uh, remarriage, maybe? A divorce and I just picked up on that. We didn't get that in the first part of the show. But anyways, they got three grandmothers. Uh, Between us, we have three grandmothers who lived to be well over 90. We have shared priorities of family health, of family health, and maintaining our current standard of living and making charitable contributions to causes that are important to us. And we would like to have an inheritance to pass on to our children. I'm hoping to work part-time in retirement. That's an important element, folks. I'm hoping to work part-time in retirement. And while my husband does not reject the idea, it's not high on his priority list. I'm writing to address philosophical differences in our thinking about managing and using our retirement funds. 
I am more conservative, given that we will likely have 25 to 30 years in which to live on our retirement savings. I'm concerned about preserving as much of the principle as possible, especially in the five to six years before we start claiming our Social Security. My husband, while not proposing to do anything too wild, does want to use the money to do things like travel and fun family gatherings. He says this is exactly what we have worked and saved for all these years, and that while we are in good health, this is the time to take advantage of these opportunities. With the projected Social Security payments, he argues, even if we significantly draw down our retirement savings early on, our withdrawals will be scaled back once we turn 70, which he says will be a chance for our retirement principal to rebound, at least to some extent. And finally, he feels that not taking our likely inheritance into consideration now does us a disservice, given that it also comes with the responsibility of making additional choices. My husband has worked hard, and I don't want to put the damper on him enjoying retirement. But I don't want that enjoyment in the early years to negatively affect our wants and needs in our later years. What are your thoughts? Am I too cautious? And my, my initial, and I'll let Chris take over for a second, but initially, Chris, I thought, this is 90% of the people we work with have these types of thoughts, yeah. concerns, uncertainties, and it's exactly why I created what, again, we call the safe number approach for retirement planning. What are the your fun, initial The fun thoughts? number approach. Fun number approach, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. Fun number approach to retirement planning. Well, the thing, and I think, uh, I don't remember everything we said last time, because, again, it was like three years ago that we recorded part one of this. But Three uh, weeks, Chris. In my mind, weeks. it was a long time ago. And I purged everything work-related from my brain as I was cruising. Um but uh, the little I do recall, I'm pretty sure I already mentioned that this begs a, 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 an analysis to address these particular questions. It's, there's not a just a uh, generic rule of thumb that's likely going to give her the type of uh, satisfactory answer that she's looking for. It's going to be break it down, address the concerns of each of them. Because they both have, as she pointed out, little different philosophy or goals in their retirement or, or concerns even. Um, he clearly is not as worried about uh, longevity risk and protecting principle as she is, clearly. So um, um, somebody's got to put together some numbers and some projections and take a look at it and break it down and, and then show them in a way that's understandable what is really their situation, what can they afford to do. And, you know, to address his main issue, you know, what really is available for him to go out immediately, which we're in great support of. And when you're young in retirement, um, being able to go out and do things before your health takes away your ability to do uh, travel and fun activities with your family and the things that he mentioned he wanted to do. Um, 
uh, all with the constraints that knowing that his wife's concerns need to be addressed, right? And I think there's an answer that can do both. Um, I'm guessing you picked this article because as you looked through it, you're like, yeah, the, you know, what we do for people um, is the type of analysis that will address these very things in the minds of soon-to-be retirees and retirees. So I think she needs an analysis that will answer her questions. Right, and that's part of their answer. So I, I do give Quentin uh, credit. Uh, he, he actually begins with that as part of his answer. But what we have here, folks, is the visual that I want you to understand about retirement. And I've often explained to this, but let's, let's chat a little bit about this, Chris, because retirement planning, if you want to dumb it down to its simplest level, is nothing more than a negotiation between the younger you and the older you. The younger you is sitting on a seesaw playing seesaw with the older you. And anything you do to make the older you go up, in other words, improve the older you and their financial situation, costs the younger you and the younger you goes down. Anything you do to help the younger you now, early in retirement, have fun, spend on fun. That's what most people retire for. Anything you want to do to help the younger you go up on the seesaw is going to cause the older you to go down on the seesaw. Retirement planning is that metal pole, the fulcrum, the metal pole that that seesaw is balanced on. That's what Chris and I do. We're a metal pole. And the idea of retirement planning is to balance where both the younger you and the older you feel you're taken care of. In this analogy, she is playing seesaw with her husband philosophically. She just doesn't know it. She is essentially the older them. He is the younger them. He rightly points out, we have the health right now. We have the money. Let's spend it on fun. She admits he's not being extravagant. They're not running out and buying a Bentley and going on river cruises in Europe for weeks on end. They're not doing silly things like that. Well, maybe the river cruise, he doesn't really say. She admits... He's being reasonable. None of what he wants to do is, is causing the, the, her consternation. It's the fact that he just wants to do it. She's saying, hey, can we chill until we're 70? Can we just put it off until we're 70? And then the Social Security turns on? And then we start spending on fun? But not only that, she's also worried, she says, about longevity. And her, as she quoted, her wants and needs later in life. The older her, she's worried about the older her. It's a seesaw ride. That's what we deal with. That's what you deal with. Not just us and anyone who's listening who's a retirement planner as well. That's what you deal with. All you do-it-yourself VGs. This is what you're trying to do. You're trying to be that metal pole. 
And if they had the right analysis, I really do feel they could accomplish what both of them want to do. Nowhere in the answer that I will start reading and going through, does any, does Quentin or the two or three people he interviews, and we're going to call them all George, I'm going to call them whatever their first name is, let's say their name is Jim, it's not, but let's say it was Jim Saul, say I was interviewed, it would be Jim George, that was what we're going to call them. I'm not going to give their full names because they're not here to be able to explain themselves and what they were thinking. And I'm certain that these advisors were thinking more than what was even reflected in the article. I don't know if Quentin had them proof their, their thoughts or not. I know the few times I've been quoted in the media, some reporters send me to say, hey, was this essentially what you were trying to say? Do I have it captured? Yes or no? Others don't. And they just put it in there. But... And I don't want to get too deep. I want to get into the the answer. But I do feel that a sound plan would help. But at no point, Chris, you're going to notice when I read this answer to you and to everyone else, is any attention ever given beyond Social Security to establishing guaranteed income to cover the concept of a minimum dignity floor, especially since she's pointing out longevity. She's expecting to live 25 or 30 more years. Do you guys really, you VGs, really want to manage your portfolio and deal with the variability of the markets and the economies and politicians and geopolitical risk, as well as just basic market risk? Deal with that for 25 or 30 years? Do you think she and her husband will be as sharp in 20 years when they're 85 as they are now at 65? There was no addressing any of that. And I think the answer falls flat because of that. But here's the answer, and we will just opine at certain points. Okay, Chris? Mm-hmm. This is totally unscripted with Chris and I. We, honestly, with me, my brain doesn't even know what the hell my mouth is going to say half the time. So I have no idea what's going to come out of me. But I have no idea what's going to come out of Chris. But he begins, dare too cautious. You need a third party to help you out. So I think ding, 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 quit mm-hmm. and nailed it right there. Just like Chris was saying. They do. They need a plan. And that's what he's saying. You need a third party to help you out. She does. I highly doubt she's listening to this podcast. But if she is, you got to get a plan. A financial planner or accountant can run through your figures, including your projected income and expenses when you retire, along with your retirement goals, your emergency fund, and any other strategies you can put in place for such things as long-term care. Travel is a small but important part of that overall puzzle. From your letter, it seems you are concerned that your husband sees his desire for experiences as a never-ending porridge pot, one that you are afraid will, will run dry sooner or later. That's his first paragraph, and I think he kind of nailed it, and I agree with it. I'm nothing wrong with that first paragraph because he's saying you need help, mm-hmm. and all you do it yourselfers. Chris and I say this all the time. 
Accumulating your assets was the easy part. Distributing them is the hard part. This woman is running victim to a very major risk in retirement. And it's not the one you're probably thinking. Sequence of return risk. That's addressed in the answer that Quentin gives and one of the advisors he interviews gives. They're going to address sequence of return risk. I don't care for the way they're going to address it, but they're going to address it. But nobody pointed out the obvious, Chris. This woman is having emotional risk. She wants to put off spending on fun in the go-go phase of her retirement. When she's at the youngest she's ever going to be. It's okay to sit there and say, hey, three of our grandparents lived into their 90s. We're going to live a long time. It's okay to say that, but it's no guarantee you will experience that. Or there's no guarantee one of you won't suffer a medical condition that will prevent any more fun from happening for that person. And I'm not saying it has to be something extreme like you're in a wheelchair or you're bedridden. You could just have some sort of condition that's going to prevent you from doing all the fun things you wanted to do. As a couple, that means the community spouse, which is the industry term for the healthy spouse, because they're still living in the quote-unquote community, but the healthy spouse or community spouse, whatever you want to call them, their fun go-go phase pretty much also comes to a screeching halt. If one spouse can't go on the trips or can't go visit the grandkids or can't play pickleball or, in my case, go hiking, hunting, gardening, fishing... Not that I have a woman who likes to do any of those things, Chris. But if all of a sudden I can't do those things, chances are whichever woman I might be within my retirement isn't going to be doing much fun either. So you can't just bank on, well, my parents lived into their 80s or 90s and three of my grandparents did. I'm going to live into my 90s. So I can afford to sacrifice the first six years of retirement and not really spend on fun. And I'm going to wait for Social Security. Any thoughts on anything so far? Uh, I think you're kind of tying her concerns in pretty nicely. So I, you know, I have read what the advisors that were consulted for this article say. Um, I think once you share that with people, You'll you'll see that their their adherence to the kind of standard rote answers don't really answer a question. I think the answer, as you'll see, is a bunch of platitudes and talking points. But at nowhere does it really answer the woman's question. Okay. So then they continue. Start by decide I, I love this one. Start by deciding how much income you plan to withdraw every year. As Mark George pointed out, under the so-called 4% rule, a person with $1 million in a 401k who spends an inflation-adjusted $40,000 a year in retirement would, in theory, beat the odds of outliving their money. 
And I'll agree. In theory, they would beat the odds. The problem is what, Chris? They might not necessarily run. There's another big risk here that's not being addressed. It's not necessarily outliving your money. It's what? Well, having the great regret that you realize later in life you could have spent a lot more and you didn't uh, because you adhered to this uh, 4% rule, which does does one thing, which is establish a easy-to-track, uh, reasonable number for people if what their main concern is avoiding running out of money before they die. It, uh, it does a pretty good job of that. It doesn't guarantee it. You know, but it, but it does a pretty good job of mitigating that particular risk. But it leaves a lot of exposure to other risks, one including you die with a whole bunch of money you could have spent. Money left over is life unlived. I said it before. I'll say it again. I'll say it to the day I die. In fact, we'll put it on my gravestone. Money left over is life unlived. Leave a dollar here. What I mean by that isn't all money. We had that one listener a long, 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 long time ago who thought we meant all money. You had to spend all your money. No. Money you earmark for fun, and especially in the go-go phase, money money left over there, I personally believe, is life unlived. Husband wants to spend it. Wife feels not so much. Let's wait. My concern is six years is a long time to wait. And you might miss a lot of the good go-go years that are left. They're 64. They're not spring chickens. And I can say that because I'm 60 and I'm not a spring chicken. And my back, Chris knows, is back, no pun intended, in force with pain. I just came back from the doctor again today. They're sending me for imaging. Huge pain in my back, preventing me from going hiking tomorrow, folks, to Mitchell Lake and Branded Recreational Area, which I scored right at the trailhead, a parking spot. I had to tell my friends I can't go. That's in a microcosm, my go-go years all of a sudden being blown out of the water. I don't know when I retire, if it's going to be at 65 or 70, it'll be somewhere between there. It'll be a partial retirement. I still intend to be involved with the firm, but you're not going to see me every day ever after that point. I don't know what's going to happen to me there. My parents are still alive at 84 and 89. My grandparents died at 73 and 84. So one could say maybe longevity isn't quite in my future, but life expectancy areas definitely is into the 80s. If I stop work at 65, who's to say my back's going to support what I want to do? I might live to 80 or 85. Am I going to be at the ability to do what I want to do? I don't know. And that's my issue, not only with her approach, the answers never really address that. So we'll continue. She's talking about the 4% rule. It's all he's saying. He's saying, if you get a million dollars, you can take 40,000 out. But George also looked at a study from researchers at the universities of Arizona and Missouri. And I must have missed this study, Chris. I got the Harvard study at 2.7. I got um, Bill Benjamin's new study coming out. Say, hey, it's actually 4 point something. You don't have to limit it to 4. Uh, but according to this study, the safe withdrawal rate is 1.9 for people who have, quote, less money saved, but no definition of what less money is. Less than who? Less than the person next to you? Less than 5 million saved? Less than a million saved? But it's the point is, listeners and Chris, 
Here's another study at 1.9. We get the original study at 4. We've got so many competitive studies that run the gamut of 2 point this, 3 point that, 3.8 this. It, it's crazy. What is the safe withdrawal rate? Who the hell knows? But I do know that a safe withdrawal rate does do one thing quite well, and that is for many people, it unnecessarily constrains spending on fun early in your retirement. Because there's no clarity, folks. This woman has, I didn't add it all up. Did you, Chris? I can't mm-hmm. remember. How much assets do they have? Uh, 1.65 million. 1.65 million. Vast majority of it in always taxable IRAs. And then lesser amounts in never taxable Roths and maybe taxable brokerage. No indication of the potential inheritance. Is it coming as a big IRA that's going to have to be closed in 10 years and a bunch of it lost in taxes? Is it a stepped up in basis brokerage asset where it's all going to be received tax-free? No information on the inheritance. Where's I going with that? Oh, but she has all these dollars invested in a portfolio, I would assume, and she can't see into it, Chris. Her $1.65 million, she doesn't have any clarity. She's clinging to the notion that I need to save it and hold it at least till 70. Then when my Social Security turns on, I'll feel more comfortable spending. If she had some clarity to the 1.6 million of assets, some idea of what it was being earmarked for, maybe spent a little bit more time on the potential inheritance and added some clarity to that, maybe she would be able to mine out of that 1.6 million what we call her fun number. How much of that 1.6, possibly 2.6, depending on how they analyze the inheritance, and Chris shared his thoughts on that in the first show. We won't get into it on this one. But if she and he had some clarity, I think they would feel more comfortable, especially her, spending on fun. And could you imagine, folks, if she knew? I'm telling you, she is looking to give the older her She's sitting on one end of the seesaw. The hubby's on the other end. She wants to represent the older them. He wants to represent the younger them. That's what this is coming down to. She wants to promise the older her or them, if he doesn't predecease her, the older them, that there will be money left over for them. What if she knew, Chris, that her food, utilities, transportation, housing, and health care were covered at least as, quote-unquote, guaranteed as it can be because we can't predict the future, but based on her spending today, her protected Social Security, what if she knew that she could protect and guarantee her food, utilities, transportation, housing, and health care expenses forever, no matter how long she lived? What if she beat her parents by 10 years or her grandparents who lived into their 90s and she lived to 103? (coughs) Three. What if that happened? If she knew that those expenses, no matter how long she lived, were covered, do you think that might make her spend on fun a little more freely, Chris? 
Well, the goal of that approach is to make you feel more comfortable that you aren't going to, um, you know, expose your most critical expenses to longevity risk about living the money. Because if you've got that never ending source of income coming in, that you can reasonably rely upon keeping up with your minimum dignity floor expenses as time goes by, which means that income has to have inflation adjustment because your expenses are going to inflate. As long as you kind of get that in place, uh, we see the value in that. I, I do definitely. I know Jim, uh, I guess I won't speak for you, but it's consistent with our approach is uh, that it gets people to kind of dial down that 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 knot in your stomach that you have worried that you're going to run out of money and you're going to be 95 years old and not be able to meet your basic needs if that's covered by something that isn't tied to your assets running out because that's the whole point of that you know secure income concept is it's not then tied to your assets running out it's going to keep coming in going to keep coming in and it's it's uh being paid by someone whose assets aren't going to run out um that you know creates this foundation, I usually call it, that, that already starts to dial things back. And then there's other things I'm sure you're about to get into over time here that, that is going to hopefully reduce that stress level or that worry of a couple of other things that bother most retirees. And then eventually then, once those are addressed, we get to that, what, what we call the fun number, but it's really what the, what the husband's looking for is how much will you really, you know, Wife, how much will you let me spend so that you're not freaked out and we can go and do some stuff while we're young? Okay. So Quentin continues, start with an annual budget for socializing and travel. I think that's what we call fun. Start with an annual fun budget. 10000 per year is a figure I picked out of the sky. Oh, now I'm a little right. That that was my initial thought. Oh, so that's that. You just randomly pick just a number pick and try that. I don't think that's what he meant. I think he meant, for example, $10,000, and I'm just randomly choosing this number. Maybe he just didn't word it clearly. I don't think the gentleman is advocating a retiree just guess. All right, let's stop at 10000 But he does say, see how you get on with that budget over time. That made me scratch my head a bit. And how get on with it? How do, what does that really mean? How are you going to measure success or failure of that ten thousand? What is it that's the trigger that makes you realize, oops, that's too high, or oops, that's too low? I should spend some more. Um, I'm not sure how you'd put, um, uh, you know, a, a useful figure on measuring how that's working over time. I agree. And I, I didn't quite understand what the Quinton gentleman meant by that because he began by saying start by essentially consulting a financial advisor. He didn't begin this paragraph by saying, now with your financial advisor, put together a realistic budget for your fun that reflects some of the spending your husband would like to do, but some of the comfort that you would want to maximally spend. I know I'm not speaking proper English here, folks, but essentially saying to her, you kind of come up with a budget of the most you want to spend. Your husband comes up with a budget of what he would love to be able to spend and work with your financial advisor doing further projections to try to work out a compromise between the two of you. I would have been accepting of even that. It's not the way we would have done it, but I would have at least been accepting of that. But he never mentions that. So I did make me scratch my head. Are you advocating that people should just randomly choose a number, 10,000 in his example, and try it out for size for a couple of years? 
and then see, as he wrote, how you get on with that. And I thought the same thing. Well, what does that measure? What does that prove? I don't know. It just confused me. He says, you should agree to remain open to further conversations about adjusting that figure upwards or downwards. That I support totally. Mm -hmm. 100%. Even with our fun number approach to retirement. You've got to revisit that fun number. And all the expenses that were mined out of your portfolio. Remember, to come up with your fun number, you must create a see-through portfolio. You must look, in her case, at $1.6 million, possibly $2.6 million, and the jury is out on if Chris and I would use that $1 million or not. We'd have more questions to ask them as a couple if we were working with them, and their answers might make us solidify, no, you should not use this $1 million, or absolutely, we feel comfortable with you using $1 million. So the jury is out, as at least Chris and I, as far as this, this little tirade we're doing today on the show goes. But to, to me, which they do know, they have 1.6 million. She's, she's admitted that. She needs to get her fund number so, folks, you stop breaking that 1.6 million up and seeing through it. And we'll get into a little bit more if you don't quite understand on this show. But listen to our old shows we did. We did like a series of five or six shows on the fund number concept. Okay. The, the next bit, I'm going to kind of gloss over, folks. I thought it was silly. It's, it's, clients have hired, if they were to hire, if people hired us and our answer to them was, hey, you know, we, we analyzed this, we looked at this, we're charging you thousands of dollars to do an analysis, and we think you need to stay at an Airbnb and not an expensive hotel. Okay, thank you. Next. Because that's what he does in the next several sentences. He says, hey, maybe your husband and you should stay at low-cost Airbnbs and not expensive fancy hotels. Okay, I get the point of what he was trying to make. Watch your spending. Don't spend it frivolously. I get that. But I think here he was, he was looking for filler. I mean, this, this is really the cellulose gum they put in cheap ice cream. They were looking for filler for that cheap ice cream so they could fill that half-gallon container. They don't want to put real cream, sugar, and milk. So they put cellulose gum. I think he had a certain number of words, and he had to reach it, so he put in some stuff about staying in an Airbnb. I'm going to skip that. Okay, then he goes into Robert George of, in Los Angeles, says your travel plan should remain flexible. I think we freely agree with that, Chris. Just like Quentin said, you've got to be flexible on any of these budget numbers, including your fund number, correct? Yes. Okay. But he continues, this is Robert George, just as life has unexpected turns, your financial plan should not be set in stone. So far, so good. I have no problem with that. We tell all our clients that. I often say this is set in jello, not set in stone when I used to work with clients and deliver plans. Here's where I start to get a little, you're starting to lose me. If the market provides higher returns early on, you should allow yourself to increase your travel. That's saying, if the market goes up, if sequence of return risk works in your favor, you could spend more on fun. But by default, that means if the markets go down or sequence of return risk does not work in your favor, 
you're going to have to spend less on fun. And that's how the safe withdrawal rate works. That they tell you, if things get tight, you're just going to spend less on fun until our Monte Carlo projection shows, and it could take a year, it could take three years, it could take five years, who knows, that things have recovered enough and you can start spending on fun again. And the reason I have a problem with that is because I'm a realist. And we spoke about this on previous shows. And there's many, many reasons why I feel this way. I would rather someone at the beginning of retirement see through their 1.6 million, properly address a potential 1 million inheritance, and come up with a reasonable fun number budget, and then position those dollars, the fun dollars, and all dollars, but the fun is what we're talking about here on this show, position those fun dollars to reflect the spending ladder you want to create during your go-go, slow-go, and no-go phase of fun spending. She may feel she's going to live to 93 or beyond, maybe to 103, as I alluded to earlier, but she's not going to be doing at 85 what she could possibly do at 65. Why are you going to constrain the 65-year-old you to some limited budget in an effort to hope the 85-year-old can still be spending on fun when the 85-year-old will be doing something dramatically different for fun if not sitting there thinking, why the hell when I was 65 didn't I go do this, that, and the other thing? The husband is kind of right there. He's saying, look, we have the health now. We have the money. We have the health. She just needs some clarity on what their fun budget is. That's what the fun number is. Chris and I, when we develop a fun number for someone, that becomes their fun budget. I don't care how fast they spend it. Money left over in that pool is life unlived. I often joke with people. You could spend, let's just say the fun budget out of a 1.6 million portfolio, and assuming they do count the inheritance and they use it for a few other things, out of their 1.6, they have a fun budget of 900,000, just making that up. Theoretically, I would joke, you could spend that $900,000 like drunk sailors on shore leave next year, have one hell of a great year, but you're not going to do that. And people would usually smile and laugh at that. But in theory, that's what you can do with the fun number. Once you've taken care of your minimum dignity floor, your delay period minimum dignity floor, your post-delay period minimum dignity floor, once you take care of your aging, how are these, this couple going to pay for aging? There's many ideas running through my head, and I'm sure Chris's, between the home equity, the inheritance, long-term care, dedicated assets. There's a lot of strategies. Once you take care of aging, Guaranteed inheritance, which she admitted she'd like to do. And a buffer or reserve, if you will. Once all of those are starting to be done, 60, 70, 75% of your retirement expenses are taken care of. The only dollars left are the discretionary fund. That's what she and her husband need to see. So she would understand, my God, I get it. I have 900000 counting the inheritance in my example. I have 900000 that I can spend on fun. 
And yes, I agree. Let's spend the majority of it, 60, 70, 75%, whatever she chooses and her husband choose. Let's spend the majority of it on our go-go phase. And because of our longevity, maybe at 65, they want to plan for a 10-year go-go phase. It's not saying they're going to be able to do it, but maybe they're going to plan for it. And then those dollars should be positioned safely. Doesn't mean no potential for growth, but it does mean the market's not going to take it away because I despise, I loathe, I cringe when I hear advisors saying, well, start with this low budget and if you get through the sequence of return period, which for a lot of advisors is the first five or so years of retirement, I'll concede that. But that might be too late at that point to turn around and tell your client, okay, you can spend more. We made it through the hardest part. You can spend a little bit more. I want to tell our client, I don't care what happens with the market. It goes up, it goes down. The economy expands, the economy contracts. This person wins the election or that person wins the election. This geopolitical risk happens or that. I don't care. I just want a client or you as a retiree, you VG do-it-yourselfers, you just want to make sure you can spend and enjoy yourself during the initial phase of retirement. It may be the most risky point for sequence of return risk, but it's the most risky point for go-go spending. Because your go-go phase is not going to last forever. And if you sacrifice your early go-go years, in her case, five years, five or six years, depending on when she retires, five or six years of her go-go phase sacrificed, I'm against that. Because you don't know when things are going to change. What are your thoughts? Because you haven't shut up yet, but you can say a few more things. No, I think it's kind of breaking it apart and looking at it like this that would eventually answer her question. This, uh, you know, guess at a number, try it out for a while. That's one of the things I fear the most for people in retirement as far as, uh, you know, if you have a goal of optimizing your retirement, squeezing as much juice out of the orange as possible uh, is sometimes how I describe it, that you'll wait too long and miss the opportunity and then um, only later realize, oh, look, we have plenty. Uh, my, my fear of running out is declined enough now I can finally let loose and spend some more. Um, and hopefully you're healthy enough at the time to do it. But you have to realize you're rolling the dice that that's going to happen. Um, we might sound a little too doom and gloom all the time focusing on it, but it happens so frequently. I think people just don't realize how much changes between 65 and 75, 75 and 85. There's a lot of physical and mental changes that happen during that time period. And, um, uh, you know, and not for the better. And not, yeah, not necessarily for the better, right? And that's the key. And that's why I'm using myself as an example today. Yeah, I hit 60 and all of a sudden my back is just, I don't know. I don't know what the hell it is. I don't want to get into it because it hurts right now like heck. But it has, in a microcosm, impacted my ability to do fun. I cannot go to Mitchell Blue and Little Blue Lake tomorrow, which was what I was planning on doing. Okay, I want to get back to this. Because remember, Robert, 
George in Los Angeles was talking about unexpected turns, and we fully support it. But then he continues. He has some reservations about your stock market exposure. He talking about Robert George, in this case, of Los Angeles. I don't think that someone in their mid-60s entering retirement should have such an aggressive allocation. We don't know what the allocation is. I'm guessing Quentin shared with the advisors who were giving their opinion much more of this listener's uh, email question, and I'm sure the the allocation was, but there was no indication in right. any of her question. But I can only guess by what Robert George in this case is saying. They have quite a bit of money in equities. So he said you should trim back your allocation in equities and increase fixed income. Since these assets are in a retirement account, there would be no tax ramification. And then Robert George also goes on to point out, for the first time in many years, the fixed income portion of your portfolio won't simply serve as a buffer, and I will put a little asterisk there, it did not buffer too well in 2022, as anyone will know. Bonds at one point last year were down, uh, 15 bonds in general as an intermediate term bond holding were down 15% plus. So they didn't offer much of a buffer last year. But anyways, your portfolio won't simply serve as a bonds in your portfolio won't simply serve as a buffer to the volatility of the equity portion, but will provide legitimate income. Okay, continues. Based on your family's longevity and your current financial situation, he agrees, meaning Robert George of Los Angeles, with your decision to defer taking Social Security until 70. I do think that the expected inheritance should be included in the plan. However, I would be conservative as to when you should expect it. A few things running through my mind there. I'm not certain both of them should delay to 70. We have no indication of their Social Security benefits, no indication if they're similar in size. We do know longevity does stay in their family, and both of them having maxed age 70 Social Security benefits could be helpful. These people, I feel, are going to need additional secure income. I think the woman, if she understood the concept of covering food, utilities, transportation, housing, and health care with income that will continue forever, whether she has money or not. Remember, Chris, she said she doesn't want to dip into principal, and that makes me cringe. That's what you saved it for. She's still looking at this like an accumulation portfolio. And I want to touch principal. And the other gentleman was saying, live off, you're going to have additional bond income. That's true, you will. But I'm saving my money, folks, to spend. I don't want to leave it. I mean, I want to leave some. Let me rephrase that. My fun money, I want to spend. I'm not going to limit myself to whatever my portfolio might be able to generate and say, that's your budget, Jim, for fun. Screw that. I could be dead at any time. I should be dead. Should have died two and a half years ago. You all know that. And now I got a back that if I can't figure this out, what if it keeps getting worse? That's what's running through my head. What if I can't hike, hunt, fish, or garden? That's what I want to do. It's what I like to do. 
You think I'm going to waste a few years waiting? No. So to me, the... To me, folks, they need the clarity. I have nothing against the advice Quentin and Robert George is giving. It's the standard industry advice. But it was also based on moving the entire portfolio more conservative. You shouldn't have this much in equities. I don't know how much they have in equities. But I do know she wants to leave an inheritance. She said that. She's got 250000 in a Roth. I don't know how much the inheritance is, but if we were working with her, I would be encouraging her to earmark that Roth as the guaranteed inheritance portion of her see-through portfolio. We're going to see through that $1.6 million. I agree with this other gentleman. He should be using the inheritance. Chris and I agree as well, but we don't have enough info to say that for certain. Maybe this gentleman does because he clearly had more info than the question indicated. But that guaranteed inheritance money, there shouldn't be one bond in there. She already thinks she's going to live 30 years. The guaranteed inheritance should be 100% equities inside the raw to maximize tax-free growth. Now, that's just off the top of my head. We definitely would do a much deeper analysis and you vanguard vg do-it-yourselfers you need to do a deeper analysis but the concept of positioning is as you create your see-through portfolio get out of what robert george was saying move your whole portfolio move it more conservative no You're using accumulation portfolio management rules in a distribution portfolio. They are two totally different approaches, mirror opposites. In a distribution portfolio, I feel you should segregate your money, the see-through portfolio. You're going to, instead of doing time segmented investing, which is what bucketing is, you're going to do spending segmented investing, which is what I call positioning. Through positioning, you will create the elements that are going to be subtracted out of your portfolio, adding clarity. You need this much for minimum dignity floor, this much for aging. You need this much for your inheritance. You need this much for your buffer or reserve. Then you start assigning the assets and the accounts to those positions. You don't move all your portfolio to a more moderate allocation because dollars that you don't think you're going to need for 20, 30 years, they should be invested as if a 40-year-old Chris walked through our doors and said, hey guys, I'm going to retire at 65. Well, gee, you got 25-year risk capacity on those dollars, and you're saving them for retirement? I think you should be 100% equities. How's your risk tolerance? Could you handle that? You're going to freak out? Anyways, what are your thoughts? Yeah, just another example of kind of pre-retire, post-retire mindset as far as dealing with your money. Um, 
that distribution phase mindset is really hard to get into, but it once you get there, it really helps you make decisions related to this. And I think it is helpful to to do some form of segregation, which is what we're doing with our positioning and identifying how much of, in their case, the 1.65 million plus the potential million dollars worth of an inheritance, what, uh, you know, what that needs to do to satisfy her concerns over longevity and those types of things. And then uh, I always say, you know, put the money, allocate the money appropriately, given what you're going to do with it and when. So it's the job that we're assigning to it. And when that job needs to be done, that makes all the difference in the world as to an appropriate place to put these little pools of money, these segregated dollars that you've got. And it, it just customizes that allocation, not to some arbitrary rule of thumb. Again, you know, a lot of this advice and even in in this article here is they're throwing out rules of thumb. Why use a rule of thumb when you can really uh, tailor it to exactly what they are concerned about that they want to address in their retirement? Even though you might end up somewhat close to the rule of thumb, that's what I find when we when we take our approach and, and then you stand back and look at it. It's actually not that drastically different, but at least you know why. You know why you've got it allocated that way, why you've got it positioned that way. And and that just is another piece that adds clarity uh, to your situation, which which you know helps in your nervousness about your your retirement status. Okay, I'm gonna continue. Then they interview another gentleman, and his name is Paul. I'm going to call him Paul George. From an asset allocation, obviously these advisors got more detailed info on the assets, folks. From an asset allocation perspective, given the current rate environment, you can somewhat have your cake and eat it too, says Paul George. of a wealth advisory firm. Again, I don't want to name the people. You can Google the article if you want to see it. With your retirement funds in your traditional and Roth IRA, we would recommend allocating the funds 50% to diversified stock, 50% to diversified bonds, all via low-cost mutual funds. I would say low-cost ETFs, but that's just a matter of opinion. But a 50-50 moderate portfolio... I got to say, I disagree. If the Roth is being earmarked as a guaranteed inheritance, this is a big if. But again, she shared with the the Quinton, they want to leave an inheritance. One of the first places we look at an inheritance is a Roth. Why? You don't want to leave an IRA. You want to get that IRA spent down because it's a tax nightmare for the older you and an inheritance. You all know that if you've been listening to this podcast for a while or other podcasts or reading or just kind of a Vanguard VG do-it-yourselfer, you kind of know. Having a million and a quarter inside an always taxable IRA, especially if her inheritance is going to be an inherited IRA as well. And we don't know, but most inheritances do come from qualified accounts. She could be hit with RMDs from her million and a quarter IRA and a million plus inherited IRA. I would be looking and saying, if that inheritance is coming in and there's no reference made to this in this answer... If you are going, and one of the advisors said, yes, count the the inheritance. 
They should have said, well, if you count the inheritance, we got to look at taxes. Because if the inheritance is coming in in an IRA, I got to get your IRA down because combining your RMDs with the massive 10-year distribution rules of a million-dollar inherited IRA, you might be nailed in taxes. But to tell someone to put 50% of Roth in bonds isn't inherently wrong if that Roth is going to be spent relatively soon, so you want some conservancy. But that's also treating all your accounts and all your assets as one big-ass portfolio because that's what they're used to, they being the advisors. That's what they're used to. When you're in accumulation, especially an AUM-based, assets under management, accumulation advisor, you, you're just wired to grow wealth. You're loath to have people spend it. Because he continues, the equities should provide growth. I agree there. And a long-term hedge against inflation. I agree there. While the fixed income should provide a steadier stream of income because interest rates are higher. And the preservation of capital. That's where he lost me. In addition to moving all their assets as opposed to positioning and saying, wow, some of these Roth, maybe not all quarter of a million, maybe they only want to leave 100,000 inheritance. That 100,000 inheritance should be 100% equities because she's already said she thinks she's going to live 25 or 30 years. Why the hell would you put 50% in bonds on something you need in 30 years? And I'm guessing they have a high risk tolerance because both advisors have said you got too much in equities. So this couple would be well uh, capable of handling the risk of 100% equities in their Roth on the assets dedicated to an inheritance. But when you say you should have your cake and eat it too because you're going to get more income from your assets and preserve capital, that makes me cringe. Unless your goal in life is to die with the most. And I don't say that facetiously. There are people, especially you Vanguardian do-it-yourselfers, you know who you are. You're loath to spend wealth because you love just watching it grow. It just makes you feel good. You want to see it grow. You don't want to spend it, you want to grow it. And if you want to be the richest man in the graveyard or... Truly leave your assets to someone else who will just turn around and spend them. That's Keep telling you that. You see assets. The government sees taxes. I see deferred spending. Because that's what it is. And to tell someone you've got to preserve your fund spending and just live your life with what your fund spending can generate That makes me cringe because I am not going to retire with millions of dollars and leave them off to the side and say, no, 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 I'm I'm only going to live off 4% of that. That, That's my fun. I'm going to limit it to four. Bull, you know what? I am going to spend my go-go money like a drunk sailor on shore leave, assuming my back allows me to. There's countries I want to visit. I don't have grandchildren. I don't have children. 
I do have a girlfriend and I hope I stay with her. And if we do, we're talking about things that we want to do. Want to buy a second home in Florida. I would love to live uh, on a pond somewhere where I can go fishing. I want a garden. Want to visit friends that I haven't seen in a while. I'm going to spend my fun principle. Why our advisors loathe, Chris, to tell people to spend? Why is it, oh, put half in stocks, that's going to give you growth. Put half in bonds, and you can live off of now higher income. I don't get it. Do you? Well, it all depends on what their goals are, as you mentioned, right? If it's, if we, we are biased, we are biased in that we promote what, uh, you know, you and I see as a worthwhile retirement, which is spending what you've saved in order to enhance your enjoyment of retirement. And because our our focus on that, we attract a lot of people who do that. So we work with people who want to do that same thing, but not everyone feels that way. Not everyone is like that. So it's, it's, uh, you know, I'm not going to judge them for that, but just realize somebody's going to spend the money. And if your choice is to let someone else do it, put together a plan that is biased towards doing that rather than you consuming your own stuff that you've amassed. Okay. I want to speed it up a little because there's one other thing that I, I didn't care for here. Mm-hmm. Same gentleman. I think his name was Paul. Was it? I'm telling what names. Uh, yeah, Paul George. He continues. Given the tax-deferred and tax-exempt nature of your traditional and Roth IRAs, respectively, we would recommend tapping these assets for income. Notice income. Tap it for income, not spending. Don't spend them now. Tap it for income. That, uh. But anyways, tap these assets for income only once you have exhausted your taxable funds first. Well, and their use of the phrase taxable is an industry application of that word. It's what we call maybe taxable. He's talking about non-retirement assets. Right. Using the traditional approach of delay, 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 and and leave the deferred assets till the end. And I think you brought up a good point just a few minutes ago about the nature of that inheritance. If that inheritance is going to come with a big bag of taxes— the last thing they probably want to do is delay, delay, delay distributions from their traditional account, which is the vast majority of their savings, right? 1.25 million of the 1.65 is traditional IRA money. They could be, if they take that advice, they could be setting themselves up for um, a tax nightmare. Tax time, as Ed Slot says, taking tax time. Exactly. And I, I don't agree with that. The conventional wisdom is what the industry calls it, is you spend your brokerage and bank assets first to let your IRAs continue to grow and your Roths continue to grow. You're just creating a bigger tax nightmare, especially with the IRA. I think her Roth should be earmarked for the inheritance that they want to do. That, that just, we, we never ever do that out of the software that we use defaults to that it's so much of an industry standard and we tell our clients that hey we this is what the software is showing it's not what we're going to recommend properly what this article should have said is hey you are retired now every year you should be looking at taxes of what accounts you should be spending from from a tax perspective based on your current needs current tax laws, and upcoming tax law changes. And you should analyze every fall 
trying to optimize the distributions that you will need for the coming year and determine if you should take them from your IRA, your Roth IRA, or your brokerage account. You're always taxable, you're never taxable, or you're maybe taxable accounts. And you need to look at that every single year. We are dead against just willy-nilly saying, initially in retirement, spend all the tax taxable money first, what we call maybe taxable. Spend all that first. Continue to delay, delay, delay your IRA because it's growing tax deferred. No, you are creating another nightmare. No mention was ever made, as I said before, and Chris just said, about the potential inheritance. And if it's coming in as an IRA, they need to start looking at that uh, traditional IRA and getting it down. And nowhere in any of the answers was any tax planning ever discussed that, hey, you have some tax diversification. Pat yourselves on the back. It's not great tax diversification. They still have, I think, 75, 80% in always taxable IRAs. And if that inheritance is an always taxable IRA, they have a massive tax nightmare. Nothing was said that you should look at perhaps a conversion strategy as well. I'm not saying it's going to work, but a tax plan, some tax projections. You have a tax planning window between now and when RMDs begin. You're going to have an opportunity during that time plan to maybe start getting your IRA down into more reasonable tax brackets. It's quite possible. Maybe you don't want to leave your Roth assets too as the inheritance at all. Maybe you want to spend some of them or all of them in an effort to start doing some proactive tax planning early in retirement. I don't know. There's a lot of missing pieces here, but it was never explained to them that, hey, these are the things you need to be looking at. And at the end, because we do have to wrap up, um, at the end, they, they do talk to another gentleman uh, named Bruce George. Um, I like it. He came uh, from the insurance side. He had a few good things if you want to get the article, but, but nothing that, that is um, making me jump out at, at anything. It ends with a couple of quotes from some Facebook group. I don't know why, but he put a couple of quotes in of what people said that they should consider. And again, it was all uh, talking points and platitudes. It was, you know, set up a budget for 10 years of travel. Uh, Maybe do both traveling, but do it off season to save money. These are okay little tips, but it's not a retirement plan. When I read this answer, and I encourage people to go get the answer and read it, the thing running through my head was, they didn't answer the damn question. Her question was, am I being too conservative? My answer is, I don't know. And neither do you. And you don't know because you don't have any forward-looking guidance. You've got this fog. You've got this brain fog. You've got this fog of a deep, dark portfolio, and you don't know what in the heck it is it's got to do for you. You and your husband are not on the same page, but you easily could be. Because he wants permission to spend on fun and you want a promise. The older you is not going to run out of money because of longevity. And the answer is there. Yes, I'm biased. In the fun number approach to retirement planning, I think you could get your answer. But I don't think they answered her question. 
I don't know, listener or, or writer, if you're even listening to this, if you're being too cautious. I think Quentin's best line was his first line. Get a plan. We didn't word it that way, but start with a third party or something like that, he said. I fully agree with that. You need to hire a planner and you need to start planning, but you have to decide how do you want to look at your assets and are you going to limit your fund to a safe withdrawal rate, especially during the go-go phase, or do you want to be able to see through your portfolio. Just start pulling out the spending. It's not rocket science. It's common sense. I got 1.6 million. I might have 2.6 million. What the heck does that money got to do for me? Well, you have to unapologetically and explicitly promise the older you, no matter how long they live, their food, utilities, transportation, housing, and health care, what we call the minimum digging floor is taken care of with lifetime guaranteed secure income. You need to optimize your Social Security. Nobody mentioned that, Chris. Just, yeah, I think they should wait to 70, one guy said. I don't. I think you should optimize your Social Security and look at it and see. Perhaps the King Solomon approach. Turn one Social Security on at the full retirement age. Turn the larger one on at age 70. I'm not saying we would recommend this, but perhaps... And that would appease the woman into maybe feeling a little more comfortable spending on fun because one Social Security is going to start earlier. But it would appease the male, the hubby, into being able to spend a little bit earlier, which is what he wants to do on fun. Maybe that's the answer. But I truly think not only for this person, listeners, but for all of you, the problem with retirement planning is there's no clarity. You are using accumulation portfolio approach to a distribution portfolio. You're blanketly telling someone to have a 50-50 mix of stocks to bonds without looking to see they have a 30-year life expectancy. Do assets that are needed in 30 years, even if it's a minimum dignity floor reserve that might be needed at 80 They're 64. They'll be retired at 65. 15 years from now, do they need 50% in bonds on those dollars? I don't think so. I, again, think they have high risk tolerance because apparently they have a lot of money in equities, two advisors have said. Those dollars with a 15-year hold, if someone walked into my office tomorrow, well, we don't work with these people, but if we did and said, hey, I want to buy a house in 15 years, I got $100,000, where should I put that money? Well, I really think you should put 50% of it in bonds. No. You want to buy a house in 15 years? You need that money in 15 years? Let's talk risk tolerance. And I think you should put it in a portfolio appropriate to that risk tolerance, which for these people I still think is pretty much equity-driven because that's the general tenor I'm getting from the answer. So when you try to do this you are going to feel this woman's very concerns and if you're a couple you're going to have one of you wanting to spend money the other concerned you need clarity you need vision you need to see through the clouds of this accumulation portfolio and yes folks that means starting to manage Four, five, six little mini portfolios, what we call positions. And each one, based not on the time 
segmentation of when it's going to be needed, which is the bucketing strategy. Here's your money for the first five years, the next five years, the next five years. Break it out based on the actual spending it's assigned to. Don't just randomly choose a 60-40, 50-50 portfolio because that's what you're bred with. That's what you know. Accumulation. we got to have an investment policy statement, and I can't have more than this much in stocks and this much in bonds, and i got to maintain this. That's crap. Not in retirement. Start looking into your portfolio, breaking it up, figure out your fun number. And to me, don't principally, well, principally protect those fund dollars from market fluctuation. Don't principally protect them from spending. You're going to spend them. I want you to spend fun. Anyways, that's my summary. What do you think? You yeah, I think up. the last thing I'd want to add is um, <clears throat> I do think they could benefit from some third-party, you know, independent advice from a trained planner. But make sure as you're interviewing planners that they're actually going to answer the questions you have. Um, many, you know, want you <laughs> as a client. Um, they're looking at the 1.65 million, thinking, "Oh, I can manage that and charge a fee on it, etc." And I'll, I'll sure I'll give them a retirement plan. But dig a little deeper, find out, you know, maybe get an example of the retirement plan that they put together, and see if it actually is going to address your specific questions. It's very important that those of you out there looking for professional advice get connected with someone who's actually on the same page as you and is prepared and has a process in place to answer the questions you have. Not the questions that they think you should have, but your actual questions. And these three, and maybe the author edited it and trimmed it, and maybe they actually did answer the question a little more directly and it just didn't make it into the article. But the evidence on the article shows what Jim mentioned. They didn't really answer her question. They gave her some things to think about, but they didn't really answer the question. I don't think it's unreasonable for you to demand from the planner, hey, this is what I'm looking for. I, I want answers to these questions. How is that? How are you going to give me that answer? What is that going to look like? Will you actually answer it? in a way that will help me get over this, you know, concern that I have. Um, and uh, might take a little research, right? Might, not, might take a little, little interviewing and finding out who, who does the type of planning that will address your particular needs. So that's important. Don't just go to anybody. Uh, make sure they're going to actually answer your question. Perfect. I think that okay. wraps this up. We'll be yeah. doing different style shows, but I thought this was, it was a good rehash mm -hmm. of uh, concepts, uh, reasoning, mm -hmm. And if, if, if a lot of what we said is confusing to you, because it is, it's not the, the industry standard of retirement planning, and you're wondering, well, I, I don't get this. What's this fun number if you're a new listener? We did do a series of shows. If they're still not on iTunes or whatever, we were on Stitcher, iTunes, and iHeartRadio and all those. Mm -hmm. If they're still not there, because I know they only keep a certain number of shows, if you go to our website, right, they're still on there, aren't they? Yeah. The, uh, yeah, you can always go to the archive of our old shows and you can search for the topics of the shows from that website if you just go to theretirementandirashow.com. That's just one big word, theretirementandirashow.com. That's the homepage for our podcast specifically, not our entire planning practice, but the, the podcast itself. And that's where we always post all of our, our uh, uh, podcast releases and keep them there. Uh, for a while, not forever. I think we've, we keep them for two years. We've been there. doing the podcast now for 10, 
1,200 years. I don't know. It's been a long time. 1,200 uh, years? It feels so that way sometimes. But, <laughs> but yeah, that, uh, that's a good spot to go. And if you have um, suggestions for future shows, we always like to hear it. Uh, certainly questions for a Q&A show, which that isn't today. Today was an EDU show. But uh, you can always email Jim suggestions, questions for us to consider for air on the show. And the best way to do that is to email him at his email address, jim at jimhelps.com. That's jim, H-E-L-P-S.com. Make sure in the subject line you indicate that it's a question for the podcast or a suggestion for an EDU show or what have you. And uh, we really appreciate everybody listening and sending in questions and and topic recommendations. We get some of our best shows from from listener ideas. And I want to personally thank everyone for allowing Chris to go on those rants that he does because I know Mm -hmm. it must be trying hearing his voice constantly. But uh, you're getting better, Chris. I'll, I'll well, give thank you. you. I'll give I'm you trying try. to be calmer. You, you are. You are calming yeah. down and uh, doing better. Well, thank you. On that note, we'll be back with you next week with a brand new show. You have listened to Jim on the radio, read his quotes in the media, and enjoyed his banter on iTunes. But even now, you may wonder what sets Jim Salmier and Associates apart from other financial planning companies. The answer is quite simple. Jim's diverse team of professionals specializes in retirement planning. They form a lifelong relationship with you and measure their success not through product sales, but through the security and prosperity you may achieve in your retirement. Jim's entire team shares his unwavering commitment to placing their clients' best interests first while offering their services at fair prices with full disclosures. The professionals at Jim Saulnier & Associates are available to assist you with your retirement planning needs. Visit jimhelps.com to schedule your complimentary coffee and a second opinion meeting. That's jim, H-E-L-P-S, dot com. Or call 970-530-0556. The Retirement and IRA Show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier & Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. 